So this morning we're continuing our series that's entitled um, Your Family, um, My Family, Our Family. And so we've been kind of looking at this idea of what creates a healthy home and what that looks like and how the church plays a role in the middle of that. And, and so the last two weeks we've talked about marriage and how, how God desires to see husbands and wives treat one another and what that should look like. And, and we, you can go back and always listen to these if you ever really want to. Uh, and so we talked about what that looked like. And what we ended last week's text, and, and we just mentioned that that Jesus, in the text where he talks about how husbands and wives should treat one another, he ends with this picture of little children coming to him, and he, and he says this, don't let anyone hinder those who want to come to me, the children who want to come. And, and what he's trying to say is this, that if we're not careful, our homes can be the kind of places that hinder children from coming to know who Jesus is. And so one of the things that I want to say this morning is I know for many of you in this room, some of you work in foundries or factories, you work on lines, some of you in here are nurses and literally you have life and death situations, some of you work in corporate jobs with high stress and, and it's difficult and so I don't want to minimize anyone's job. But I want to say this this morning, that I, I'm fairly convinced that the toughest occupation, the most difficult occupation or job you can ever have is that of a parent. You're entrusted with this child or this person to take care of, and I'll include grandparents, and I do want to preface this morning by saying that I think the role of the church is simple in this, um, that even if it's not our children, we're called to come around the children of, of others and to embrace them and to make sure they see love as well. But I'm convinced the toughest job is that of, of parent, and, and it's tough because from birth on, you are responsible for that child. When they're born, you have to feed them because they cannot feed themselves. In fact, you have to change their diapers because they definitely cannot do that themselves. It's a great day in our house because our daughter is potty trained, and so we don't have to buy diapers anymore, we hope. Um, but, but that stuff just continues on. I mean, it never seems to stop. You have to buy other things. And, and as they get older, you know, they learn to say no, and it's a disheartening thing when your child tells you no. And, and then they turn into teenagers, and they always tell you no. And then they get a little older, and they leave the house, and then you wish they were the little kid that you couldn't hardly didn't know what to do because you weren't sleeping. Um, but, but that's kind of the role of a parent, and so it's actually pretty hard. See, I think one of the things that I want to be able to say to my children someday, and, and I could say this today, and I pray I can say this in the next 30 or 40 or 50 years if I live that long, is this that I never did anything to you, I never said anything to you, I never punished you, I never, nothing I ever did or said wasn't out of love towards you. Now, I can tell you I've already screwed up as a father and will continue to do so for many years to come. But I've never intentionally hurt them. I've never intentionally done that. And so my goal is for, for their life later on, for them to say, you know what, Dad, I, I know you screwed up. You remember the time? And they'll probably have a laundry list of things they can mention. But they'll know that I did everything because I love them. See, I'm convinced that this is what God so desperately desires for his people in relation to their children. He wants them to look like people of love, like him. And we see this picture all throughout the scriptures. We see this picture of God doing these incredible things among his people. And we see this all throughout the Bible where God responds in ways to people out of love. We also see this picture sometimes of what love shouldn't look like. And so we want to say this morning that parents to children, love is one of these things that we're called to give. And some of you, it's grandchildren as well. 
And so I, I want to say this, that here's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and I, I want you to stand, if you would, as we read this together. Um, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 says this. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, Paul begins here with this fifth commandment. This commandment says to honor your father and your mother. And so all of you who are parents and your children are here today, I know it's all you can do not to just elbow them a little bit to remind them to listen to that. And it does say that if you honor your parents, that life will go well for you. Um, and not always in the way that we sometimes think. But see, I'm actually convinced in this text that Paul put this there as a preface for what he really wanted to say. See, I'm actually convinced that Paul wrote that just to get the attention of parents because it's the next couple of verses, or verse 4, I think, that matters. Fathers, and actually that could be translated just as easily parents, which is probably more appropriately for us. Parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Or in other words, we could say it this way. Parents, don't discourage your children. Now, Paul's writing a letter that was circulated among churches. It wasn't just written to the church in Ephesus. It was written to several churches. And it was gone throughout the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, I don't know what you know about the way they treated children in that world, but, but here's the way it would work. When a child was born, it would be placed at the feet of the father. And the father has a couple choices at this point. The father can, can pick up that child and embrace it. And the father picks up the child. He's saying, this is my child. But sometimes, if it was a female, or if it was deformed, or if it was from a mistress, on a too regular occurrence, the father would look at the child and turn around and walk away. When the father would walk away, that child would be taken outside, and it would be um, often dropped off in the Roman form. And the children in the Roman form, there would be some who would come and care for them, and some would try to take them home and raise them, but often was the case Someone might take them and take them home and care for them, only when they came of age to sell them into slavery or into prostitution. I could show you letters from the first century world in which a, a husband may write to his wife and say, hey, I just want you to know I'm thinking about you, and I'm paraphrasing here. Um, I love you, and I'm excited to be home, and, and uh, I'm excited to meet our new child. If it's a son and if it's a daughter, you can get rid of her. See, in the Roman world in which Paul lived, children weren't all that much, all that valued. And in fact, it was such, a, such a, an odd society for us that, that, a, that a father of a child, um, unless it was a daughter given away in marriage, if it was a son, the son could become the mayor of the city, could become a magistrate in the Roman Empire, could be, could be a general in the army. But if the dad ever said, I want to kill my child, the father always had that right. The father had complete control, absolute power over the child regardless of age. Now, we can hardly fathom this. This doesn't make sense to us. What we can't understand is that, that Paul, in the writing of this letter, and in so many other ways, the church really did radically transform the Western world and the way children are viewed by parents. Paul gave a voice and gave value to children where they never had a voice or value before. And so Paul's words here are this, that children matter. 
And one thing we sometimes forget is God is the God of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. And there's no way around seeing that children are often poor and oppressed and marginalized. So what Paul's really trying to say here is this. Uh, mothers and fathers, don't expect honor from your children if you don't give them honor. Don't expect respect if you don't give them respect. Don't expect love if you don't give love. Paul's taking what they would have understood and he's turning it around and saying, listen, it doesn't, anyone can give a discouraging word, but it takes a true parent to give an encouraging one. And so I want to say this morning, I know some of us in this room come from backgrounds where, where frankly, home wasn't safe or fun or a good place to be, and mom and dad weren't really good people. And if that's you today, I want to say with complete conviction that is never what God intended, and I know it breaks his heart as it does mine. See, one of the desires for God is that in the midst of broken homes, that the church would become the kind of place that love and support are seen in every kind of conversation. That love and support will be what kind of define the people of God. It's why Vacation Bible School this week matters. Because even if you don't have a child or a grandchild, you better be investing in the life of someone else, and they better see God's love through you. It was perfect at the end of the first service because it, there were some kids yelling in the hallway and, and um, some people I know get a little tense because it gets kind of loud in there sometimes and it's not quite done in the first service. And you can see some of them just cringing just a little bit. And, and I said, by the way, that's really good for us to hear because there are kids here. That's really good. See, I remember, um, it's been a few years ago now, but Dr. Middendorf spoke at a church I was at where we were before and and he was one of the retired general superintendents in the Church of the Nazarene, and he talked about how as a, as a pastor, he used to yell at his kids for running in the hallways, and, and um, he'd just get all over them. And, and i got to be honest with you that um, I sometimes worry, because if it's my kids acting up, I, I, there's that whole the pastor's kids thing, and, which isn't helpful when you say it. Frankly, it irritates me, I'll just tell you. But there's something about you feel embarrassed for your children, for you, but really your kids have done nothing wrong. And so Dr. Middendorf said, you know, I used to get on my kids, and then I had grandkids. And I started thinking about how I wanted them to see the church. And how I so desperately wanted them to be in love with the church, and in love with God's people, and in love with that place. And so I said, you know what? I watched them run, and I encouraged them. In fact, I chased them. And then I apologized to my own children. So I can promise you I will never yell at a kid or get on a child who's running in the hallways here. I'm glad they're here. See, one of the things that sometimes happens in the life of the church is we, we find ourselves in positions where we're so concerned about the wrong kind of things. We're so concerned um, about behavior modification and not spiritual transformation. Right, we want them to do the right thing, to say the right thing, but we don't really care what their heart's like. As long as they do the right thing in front of other people, then we don't have to worry about the other. But frankly, I'm more concerned with their heart than I am with their behavior because I believe that if the heart's right, then the behavior follows. Now, I'm not advocating for lack of discipline. I think that's a really bad idea. See, and so I, William Barclay gives three things that he says to avoid as parents um, when he's commenting on this text says, one, we can't forget that things change from generation to generation. In other words, when I was a kid, isn't helpful. Because you're not a kid. And you're not growing up in the same environment they are. None of us are. Two, we can exercise too much control. 
I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase helicopter parent. Um, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Um, I can tell you I've watched it a lot. I work with teenagers and college students for a long time, and, and um, people jokingly talk about how parents are showing up for interviews for jobs, and that's not untrue. They're calling college professors and complaining about grades, which isn't untrue, and then you actually say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to talk to you. Your child can come talk to me. See, if we're not careful, we, we, we want to love our children so much that we actually control them, and it doesn't become love anymore. We, we smother them in an attempt to love them, and that doesn't look much like Jesus. I'll talk about that in a few minutes, about why it doesn't. But we can exercise too much control. And so letting go becomes a valuable thing, and it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. Like if you ever want to talk about the helicopter parent thing, I, we can talk a long time. I'll, I won't say any more this morning. Um, number three, we can forget to encourage. Our children better hear words of encouragement, not just admonishment. See, it's really easy as a dad to want my kids to do the right thing, and if I'm not careful, I'll say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And, and they don't hear a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm proud of you. You know, what you did right there was really good. You know, you, you, uh, that made your dad really proud, or your mom, or whatever the case might be. See, I think parents have so many roles and, and um, disciplinarian, all kinds of things we try to do as a parent. But the primary role of a parent, uh, according to the Bible, or Scripture, or the Christian tradition, is that of discipler. We're called to disciple our children, to help them figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus with their lives. Sometimes I hear people say things like, well, I used to go to church, but I don't go anymore. Or hear them say, well, I don't want my kids to hate church, so I don't force them to go. And my question usually is the same question. It's this, well... Are you modeling for them if you're saying, I don't want to force my kids, or if they're saying, I, I don't want to go as an adult? My question is this, were your parents or the people who you saw around you, did they actually look really like followers of Jesus, or did they just fake it on Sunday and live totally different the rest of the week? Because if it's the latter, I can tell you why they don't want to go to church. But often the reason kids don't want to go to church is because mom and dad don't model what it looks like to follow Jesus. And often we, our kids shouldn't have a choice yet. See, I, I, I think of some stories that have been pivotal in my life because I, I could tell you stories in church because I have some that are really bad memories and, and some of you have some horrible memories of church and what it was like there. But I can tell you a couple good stories that stand out in my mind. Um, I remember when I was, I was two or three years old and I, I vaguely remember the story. I've heard it so many times I feel like I remember it. See, my, my dad always sat in the back left corner of the sanctuary, and so he, he would always sit back there, my mom and dad, and, and um, when I was a little boy, two or three years old, I, I always carried a ball with me, using some kind of basketball, and, and I was sitting back there on a Sunday evening service, and, and I dropped my ball. My mom had said, Tony, don't let him bring that in there, and my dad said, Valerie, it'll be just fine. Well, I dropped it, and the sanctuary was like this one. It was sloped to the front, and the ball rolled from the back row all the way up, and it bounced off the pew, or off the altar. And my parents sat there a little bit embarrassed, but no one really seemed to notice too much, so that my dad thought the better option than him going, he's six foot four, he's a big man, and him going up there would be draw lots of attention. He thought, we'll send Aaron, that would be a good idea. He sent me up there. Well, I watched the ball roll down there, so I thought the obvious choice was for the ball to roll back up. 
Do you know how hard it is for a two or three year old to try to roll a ball all the way from the front of the sanctuary to the back? It's impossible. And so I tried again and again and again. At this point, this whole section of the sanctuary was rolling in laughter. My dad's face was bright red, and my grandfather was the pastor of that church, and, and he stopped and he says, Aaron, do you need some help? At which time my father is making his way down there and picks me up, face beat red, grabs the ball and me under one arm, and just walks out the back door. Now some of you assume right there that the next thing was I was in trouble, but in fact my dad knew it was his fault, not mine. So the story's just funny. There's no story of me getting spanked in the foyer for that, although I probably got spanked plenty of times and deserved them all. The other time I remember I was about eight or nine years old, and, and we had this youth pastor at the church there. He only lasted about a year, and, and these kind of stories will tell you why. They had this youth like spaghetti dinner in the gym, and, and um, they were cleaning up, and pretty much everybody was gone. There were about a couple of teenagers left in the place, and, and my... My mom said, well, yeah, you can go play basketball now. It's okay. And so I, I headed towards the, the gym and got the ball and was shooting on one end, away from where there were a couple tables left, but pretty much everybody's gone. And Dale, the youth pastor, comes over and he starts yelling at me. And he says, this is a youth event, and you're not a teenager, so you need to get out of here. So I did what every eight, nine-year-old did. I started crying and ran to my mom. <laughs> I got to my mom, and she looked at me, and she said, what happened? And I told her, and she says, well, I told you you could play. So you go right back out there and you play. So I went back out there and all of a sudden he started coming back because he had just told me what not to do. So I froze because I was scared to death. And my mom started making her way that way, but then somehow, and this probably happened only a handful of times in, in her life, my grandmother, who doesn't really play basketball, came over and picked up the ball and said, I'll play with you. And, and he didn't have the heart to yell at my grandmother, probably because his boss was his, her husband, but... But he let it go. And so I remember that story because I remember my mom standing up for me in a moment when she didn't have to. I had done nothing wrong. I had, in fact, done what she said I could after I'd asked. Or I could tell you the story of, of Andy Stanley talked about his dad, Charles. Some of you may have heard of either one of them, and I think Andy's the much better preacher of the two. But Andy, as a teenager, would sometimes skip church. Um, his dad would be preaching, and they'd slide out, like in the beginning of the service, and go to the restaurant down the road and, and have breakfast. He and a buddy. And so one Sunday he slid back in and one of the office workers saw him slide back in the church and, and waited until Andy was right next to his father and she went over and she said, Charles, do you know where your son was? He said, excuse me? Your son skipped church and was at the restaurant down the road. And he looked at her and he put his arm around his son and he said, well, he's my son, not yours. You don't need to worry about it. And he walked away and Andy said, I got in the car and I thought I was a dead man for sure still. My dad turned around and looked at me and said, Andy, you're my son and I love you. I want you to make wise choices. He said, I didn't skip any more church after that Sunday. And my dad chose to defend me rather than allow someone else to yell at me. And see, those are stories I could tell, and there are many others that we could tell about what it looks like for people in the church to begin to embrace one another. But this idea of encouragement isn't limited to parents alone. See, there are kids who line the hallways every single Sunday here. Some of them come from great home lives, some of them don't. Some of them have parents who encourage them, some of them don't. But there's no reason that each of us here can't make sure we encourage at least one more child. Our goal of par as parents isn't to have well-behaved children, although we kind of hope for that. Our goal is spiritually transform children.
And maybe you begin to ask this question, well, how do I do that? How is a parent, how do I I get my child to live into God's story? How do I get him to choose that above other stories? How do I get her to live into that kind of way? And Hal Perkins wrote a book called If Jesus Were a Parent, and so he kind of takes the model of Jesus with his disciples and uses it and fleshes it out, and frankly, I think it's overall pretty good. And so he he says there are three roles a parent plays. They, They play a role where they have relational authority. In other words, they build a relationship with their child. It's time spent together. It's how we show grace. So number two, they have rational authority. It's, it's where we teach and explain things to our kids. It's where we give them truth. They have positional authority. They're the parent, not the friend. Sometimes they have to be the one over the other. It's where he uses the, the phrase law and government. So parents have this combination of grace and truth and law, and they all twist together. And how do we know when the right time to use what is? And then he says this, which is hard for some of us to hear. Our goal as parents is to create free, independent thinking people. To encourage independence, to teach them to grow. And he lists four phases as a parent we walk through. And, and phase one is this, that, that um, I, the parent, decide. We like this phase. It's easy. Do what I said. Wear this. No, you cannot go there. It's all about what mom and dad say. And right now, that's where my kids live. I mean, like, you know, they, they go, can I wear this? No, you can wear that, though. Now, we, we use that, and we get into more difficult topics. Phase two is this. We, we, parent and child, we talk. But the parent still decides. Phase three, we talk. You decide, you being the child. Unless your decision is too dangerous or out of bounds, and then I'll bring you back in. And phase four, and this is the scariest one of all, you decide, the child. And we talk only if they want to talk. And he says the goal is to get to this place when you have a year left of your child at home so that there's time for you to try to have conversations when things don't go right. But maybe you're like me, you have this question. What if they choose wrongly? What if they make poor decisions? The reality is I can promise you they will, and I expect my kids probably will, and it will take all the grace in me not to to jump back to phase one, do what I say. But my greatest fear isn't that my kids will make poor decisions. My greatest fear is my kids won't choose Jesus. See, my greatest fear isn't that they will make wrong decisions in their life, because that's kind of inevitable. We've all done it. But my greatest fear is that when Jesus says to them, get in the boat, come with me to the other side, come and follow me, that they'll say, you know what, I've got other things going on. I don't really have time for that. And so my goal is to make sure as a father that I model in every way that I can what it looks like to follow Jesus so that my kids want to follow because they saw a life well lived. And this morning, I want to say to you that next week, we're going to talk about what stories shape our families. What, what's the story that defines us? We, we kind of live into one of two stories. We live into the story of the world and everything around us, or we live into God's story and his kingdom in the world. And so our families choose which story we are going to be a part of. And frankly, both worlds collide. And if we're not careful, one can win over the other. And so I came across this story this week, and I wanted to share it when we were trying to figure out how do we parent, how do we help our kids, how do we help them move in directions, and I thought this was a good picture for us. It was written by the guy I mentioned, Hal Perkins. This is his daughter writing this. She says, when I was very young, something constantly happened between my dad and me. 
I was kind of the strong one of the triplets, they say. I can't imagine having triplets, by the way. I was the feisty one. It seemed to me that my brother and sister could always do everything right. I was the one that always messed up. I would say to myself, oh, Deborah, can you just do it right for once? I seemed always to get in trouble. I would do something wrong. I still remember hearing my dad's voice after I would mess up. He would say, honey, come here. And I would think, oh, Deborah, why did you blow it again? The last thing that I wanted was, once again, to walk to my father as a failure. I was going to stand in front of him, again, embarrassed that I had messed up. I would feel so much shame. From my childish mind, I would think, my dad is mad at me. I assumed he would reject me because, once again, I didn't measure up. So I would drag myself over to my dad. He would be on his knees. He would look at me eye to eye. He always put his arms around me. This happened over and over And every time, the same thing would happen. My dad would be holding me, but I would pull away. His arms were around me, but I would resist his embrace, pulling back. I could not look at him. I would look over this way and that way. Then every time, he would open his arms, and I would fall down. Every time, I'd be totally embarrassed, because I had fallen down again. He would just ask me questions. Honey, why are you pulling away from me? I'd get up, and we'd back to eye to eye again. Got to get this over, I would think. So I better just look him straight in his eyes. So now I'm looking at his eyes, and I remember that every time the first thing out of his mouth was, I love you. I love you. And I would think, no, Dad, you can't love me now. I just messed up again. I can't receive your love right now. You're supposed to punish me. I'll do my punishment, I'll do my time, then I will come back when I'm all cleaned up, and then you can hug me, and then you can tell me that you love me. Don't tell me that you love me right now. I can't accept it. This is a battle that some have with God's grace for us. Deborah went on to make the point that Jesus comes to us in our weakness and failures, first with grace. Returning the illustration from our relationship, here's what she continues to write. My behavior was changed because of receiving grace in my weakness. One time I remember it very clearly. We were right beside the green and gold sofa. I had again done the wrong thing. Again, my dad called me to come to him. Again, I dreaded facing my failure. This time, again, I'm sorry, again, my dad held me. But this time, I did not resist his embrace. This time, when he let go, I did not fall backward. This time, I simply relaxed in his embrace. Dad said, look. I'm holding you, and you're not pulling away. I saw it. I was relaxing in Dad's embrace, even though I had just failed again. That day I realized that I actually believed that my dad loved me, even liked me, in spite of my stumbling and weakness, in spite of my failures. That day I realized the lie was broken. The lie, Dad will love me if I am good enough, that lie expands. God, the holy, righteous God, will love me if I am ever good enough. This lie seems to inevitably get in and must be broken. This is what we need to know and feel about our Heavenly Father. He loves us. He knows us and likes us, even in our failures. In a world that focuses on and rewards success, and that rejects or even punishes imperfection, we all find it nearly impossible to believe that our Heavenly Father is gracious. Let's review. Grace. God is love. 
He loves me and wants to hold me even though I just messed up. Because he loves me, he wants what is best for me. He dies for my best even while I am a rebellious sinner. But he experiences great pleasure, great enjoyment. He likes me. In spite of immature performance, he sees my heart and sees that I intend to be responding to him, to please him. This results in my having severe pain when I fail him, and imagining that he is equally pained as he looks at my failure. But he is looking at my heart that truly wants to do what he wants. My Heavenly Father likes me, enjoys me, is pleased with me, even when I mess up, even in my immaturity, even in my brokenness, because my intent to do what he wants is infinitely greater to him than my ability to do it. Paul's words are pretty clear. Don't discourage. The opposite of that is this. Make sure you encourage. See, the role of the church, the role of parents, is that we are to encourage children. I'm not saying don't discipline. I'm not saying there aren't times to say no. Don't, don't hear that. But our goal as parents and grandparents fellow brothers and sisters in crisis, for kids to come to know an encouraging word, to know that just like God, our love for them will keep coming back and saying, I love you, even when you screw up. That's what it looks like to love as God loves. That's what it looks like to embrace what he calls us to. That's what it looks like to be like Jesus. So I invite you to give an encouraging word. Make sure that your child and my children don't ever say, you know what, I don't want to ever go back to the church because one is full of a bunch of fake people. That's about you and I and our relationship with God and accepting his grace for us and allowing him to transform our heart. And the other side of that is this, to make sure that our kids don't say, you know what, I never got an encouraging word. They just told me no all the time. Because that doesn't look a lot like Jesus. So I invite you and I for us to figure out how to be better parents and grandparents and for us to be better at showing love to the kids who come into the doors of this place or that we impact in this community. Will you stand with me as we pray this morning? Father, we come before you and we thank you for the way you continue to be at work here among us. Help us to give encouraging words to one another. Help us to, to help our children come to the place where they choose you with their lives. Help us to make sure we offer grace to them. We keep putting our arms out for them. Help us to make sure we look more and more like your son Jesus so that we become the kind of parents that you call us to be. May our homes become safe havens, places of comfort and rest. May they be places full of grace and truth and law even when needed. So Father, we thank you this morning for the way you continually open up your arms to us. And may we be the kind of parents who open up our arms to our children. I pray this in your son Jesus' name.